Uh, how's it been? Uh, it's okay. It's not too bad. I was excited to watch Shadow and Bone trailer today. <laughs> yeah, I know this is like, we're already recording, but the like exciting news is, is Eli and I, well, Eli, you got me into this book. Yep. <laughs> I actually, I haven't read the the original, the trilogy, but I've read the Six of Crows and the, I forget what the sequel is called. Crooked Kingdom. Crooked Kingdom, yeah. yeah. Which I really liked. Lee Bardugo. Yeah. Highly the original trilogy, I think, is much more like traditional YA, I would mm-hmm. say. The, the, and the Six, Six of Crows kind of like pushes it to like maybe another like, level. It's like, yeah, it's, it's my impression is I have having not read the first trilogy, but my impression is like it's a little more mature in, in some of its themes and, and the topics it, bre- it broaches. It's not like crazy. Like, I wouldn't say it needs necessarily, like, a content warning, but, like, but it's also kind of structured around, like, at least the first one particularly is, like, it's, like, a heist story. Yeah. So it, it like, plays into some of the conventions of, like, he- you know, I think, like, with, like, the Rick and Morty joke that's, like, 60% of the heist is, is assembling the crew and the other 40% is finding out the heist already happened. Like, there's a little bit yeah. of that where, like, <laughs> exactly. one of the characters, like, Kaz, one of the characters is this, like, kind of mastermind and then something happens. He's like, I have foreseen this. You know, it's, it's like a Batman kind of yeah. thing. And the second book kind of gets away from that a little bit. But it's, like, it's a fun read. I really liked it. Oh, yeah, trailer. it's super enjoyable. And so I'm I'm excited to sort of see... Uh, is the a film filmish version of it because it's like it looks like they're kind of combining both series a little bit is that the idea yeah so this is what i have heard because i am obsessed and i did go read all about it okay (laughs) that they are sort of showing what one because the original story of six of crows takes place chronologically after the first trilogy Mm -hmm. so they're starting in the first trilogy and sort of showing what these other characters that we don't meet in the books until later are doing earlier. Uh, gotcha. So kind of prequely, mm-hmm. uh, but sort of like adding more stories. But it yeah. still sounds like it's going to be heisty, which I'm okay. excited about. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 cool. I, I just watched actually the Oceans Eight, which I I liked. I thought it was like a it was like a it was a movie that it. I needed at the time. I just like I want like just like a fun movie to watch yeah. right now. And there it was. Yeah, it was good. Okay, I rewatched Oceans Eleven recently. That I love. I mean, that I think is great. Same, the same. I need a comforting movie to make yeah, me feel good. <laughs> for sure. All right. Should we start our podcast? And talk I guess. About- I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All made me go down various rabbit holes i I have an entire book pulled up that i'm going to talk about i've only read like the intro (laughs) in like half of the first chapter but i'm like reading i and i wish i had found this earlier because i it's like yeah there are so many aspects to this movie that i really want to get into Um, yes so many this was i like i'm actually like the more i think i think like while i was watching it i was sort of I was, I was enjoying it more than I think other ones, but it has, you know, there's, I, I've caught myself like look, looking at my phone a couple of times, but yeah. I'm thinking about this movie after the fact is like getting me more excited. Like the more I think about this movie, the more excited I get. I'm kind of like working myself up into this, <laughs> this whole like little, and you can see like, so Eli and I have a, usually like right before we record, I kind of make a Google doc to kind of write down some, some notes. And sometimes the Google doc is like a page with like five bullet points. Mostly we use it for the links we use for our recording stuff. So sometimes it's like five bullet points. And sometimes like today it's four pages of basically just like wall to wall text. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's, I have like so many tabs open of like different things that I just looked up 
Mm-hmm. I have like the Wikipedia for like, the film, McCarthyism. Yeah. Yeah. The third survival war. I yep, was like brushing back up on war. that. Uh, okay. Let's introduce the show again. Uh, now that we're like five minutes in, uh, do you want to do it or is it my turn? I did it last time. So I think it's your turn. Okay, sweet. Hello. And welcome to movies. We dig the podcast about film antiquity and everything in between. I am Spartacus. No, I'm Colin McCormick. <laughs> and I am also Spartacus. Yeah. But I am Elijah Fleming. <laughs> Excellent. Today we are all Spartacus. We are Spartacus. <laughs> well, and as you can tell, we're talking about Spartacus, the 1960 historical drama directed by Stanley Kubrick, written by Dalton Trumbo and starring and produced by Kirk Douglas. So Eli, which is like, that's a hell of a list of names. Um, right? <laughs> I forgot that this was a Kubrick film, which is something I, I, I want to talk too. about. Because that's it's something that it's well, we'll get right into it. But yeah, the obligatory question, Eli, do you dig this film? Uh I think I kind of do, but I, I will say that it drags in parts. Like you said, I think I found myself kind of like getting distracted or looking at my phone, but just like for all of the topics that it brings up and the sort of odd um recognition of human suffering Mm -hmm. that we sort of get in this movie i think i i dig it for i don't want to say for that because that sounds terrible but just (laughs) yeah i think i kind of dig this movie i like i was just saying i you know it's a three-hour movie with an over with an overture and an intermission and an entract uh (laughs) which yeah which is normal for the for the time we don't i'm trying to think when's the last movie most recent movie I can think of that begins with like that kind of like overture and has like an intermission. I guess like Tarantino films have intermissions in them sometimes, don't they? Sometimes. Yeah. Um, Sound of Music. Yeah. Has Um, some of that. But Um, when I, I went to a James Bond movie in uh, Istanbul and they had, they forced in an intermission. (laughs) Which one? Skyfall. I'm trying to remember if that was, that's a, that's a long one. I think it feels like a long movie. Yeah, it does feel like a long movie, but there was like the lights came on. There was like intermission. I was like, what's happening? <laughs> oh, weird. So I was, I was saying like this movie, I like you were saying, this movie is, I think, far more thoughtful mm-hmm. and and it's just different. And like after having we've, we've talked about, particularly I'm thinking of Quo Vadis, Yes. And to a lesser extent, Cleopatra. But like in com- in comparison to those movies, to me was like a breath of fresh air of just For like. Sure the themes that this movie wants to talk about the kind of nature of the, the way the characters are constructed and relate to one another is just like, I mean, I think this, this movie is important culturally and historically for all sorts of reasons, but it was just, it was just good to see what I really dig about this movie is it kind of gives me like a sort of hope for sort of sword and sandal films because yeah, yeah. we've talked about how a lot of these movies or a lot of sword and sandal films tend towards more conservative ideologies or something like mm-hmm. that. They tend to be about sort of brave, strong white men who get what they want. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking again of Quo Vadis, which is a story of a guy who starts out with a lot and ends up with everything he wanted. Yeah. <laughs> and much. this is not that movie. This is, I mean, it's a movie no. about people in the sort of a general world. It's a movie about sort of systems, which is gives me hope for is that like films about the ancient world can be used to tell these very prescient stories with that touch on concerns and issues that like are very are pertinent to us 
and that you can tell these kinds of stories. And what, what we, we've talked about a lot is this movie, I think, does what I look for, I think, in a good sword and sandal or historical drama or something like that, which is it uses ancient material to tell a sort of modern new story. Right. I am aware that there's, as a historical film, like <laughs> there's all sorts of oh, problems, yeah, yeah. but like, I don't care about any of that. And then exactly. the, the, cre- the creators knew that too. And they there was a conscious decision to be like the legend and the story we're trying to tell is more important than whatever actually right. happened, which I 100% agree with. And I think should be because it, it's really about myth and mythology, which is just even academically kind of more my speed. I'm, I'm more into, if, if you give me a choice between exciting myths and sort of mundane, but accurate history, I'll take the exciting, right, right, myth right. Every, which is like the thesis of like big fish, but <laughs> Right. Well, like, I think that I also connect with this academically as well. It's because like a lot of my research looks at people who aren't named in history, people who don't, you know, show up in texts or literature, stuff like that, like really, really poor people, enslaved people, that kind of thing. So it is really intriguing to be able to tell stories that don't necessarily have to be historically accurate, but sort of register on a human level. Mm-hmm. Um, as like, you know, they, these were people who existed and who lived really, really awful lives sometimes. And like that can be in itself good storytelling. Yeah. Like that one of the notes that I kind of took down for myself is that there's kind of whole characters in this movie that aren't named. You just see them over the course of mm-hmm. a couple of shots, like in the sort of, yeah. not even the army, but the whole revolution movie. You see like there's like an old couple and a young couple and children and then you see them at the very end when they're dead and like yeah. we never know what their names are, what their deal is. But this movie is like aware and this movie is really more aware of just regular human beings that make up yes. these sort of larger groups. And Spartacus is like it's not just all Spartacus doing himself. He's part of a larger social collective movement, yeah. which is I really like because just stories in general. I was listening to another podcast that was talking about this, like movies in general tend to privilege or prioritize sort of individualist narratives partially just because of the format like we need a character and a protagonist to follow so it's harder you know it's like is it possible to tell like a marxist collectivist (laughs) kind of movie you know where it's all about the greater sort of social societal movement uh and i think i mean this has trappings like there's a lot of spartacus's individuality that comes through but this movie is like aware of like the regular people that are also part of this larger movement in a way that like in quo vadis we don't really, I don't even think Marcus Vinicius really cares about regular like Christians that no. are being persecuted. Like no. as far as I can tell, he is only invested in the the persecutions because of he's in love with, with a, a Christian. And yeah. had Lygia been someone else, he would have been like, I don't know. Like exactly. And same with, with Cleopatra where the, the sort of welfare of Egypt, the country is, basically directly equated to the welfare of Liz Taylor. Right. Or, you know, if, if, if Cleopatra is good, Egypt is good and vice versa. Like she is the state. She is the whole thing. Like we don't really, yeah. you know, we, we never really see like what the Egyptians are up to or like what, how they feel about say Roman occupation. No. Or even like um, on the opposite side, like, you know, people starving in Rome mm-hmm. when they can't get grain from Egypt yeah. at some point. So yeah, yeah. they're, there are you know, huge um, effects that come out of all of these big political 
shiny things that don't get put into the big shiny processions and movies. Yeah. And like yeah, the- I was really surprised about, you know, seeing all of those like dead bodies and the sort mm-hmm. of uh, again, recognition of real human suffering yeah, and because the, of wider political things. So this movie, I mean, we, we haven't quite danced around it, but this movie is about, and the, its source material is about the sort of oppressive systems, foremost among them being slavery and sort of the, the inherent evil of an institution like slavery and how it crushes and grinds people down. And uh, I guess, should we talk about, like, the first thing to talk about is just the because we've said, again, my I'm like a broken record. Movies about the ancient world usually have more to say about the time they were made in rather than mm-hmm. the time they're they're sort of set in. This is this movie knows that's the case, as did its creators. But we can talk about the, the context of, yeah, you were mentioning you have all these articles pulled up on like McCarthyism and the Hollywood 10 and blacklisting. <laughs> but to set the scene a little bit in the context before this movie was written in Hollywood in the late 40s and, and 50s. Uh, one of the worst things that you could be, at least in the public eye, was a communist or a communist sympathizer. Yeah. And I think what it's the um, the scary, covert, like illegal FBI, the Cointelpro, the counterintelligence program was like started to sort of harass people suspected of being communists or communist sympathizers. And then, you know, eventually got so scary and terrible. They're like the ones who assassinated Fred Hampton and and all of this stuff. So mm-hmm. this was like the beginnings of of all of that. Really yeah, all the J. Edgar, J. Edgar Hoover shit. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you seen Judas and the Black Messiah yet? Ever? No, it's on my list to watch this weekend. I really want to. Yeah, it's a movie that I like want to see, and I've heard it's pretty. I've heard it's good, but yeah. it's also a movie that I need to be in like the right mindset. It's going to make me really sad. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's like we know how it ends, and it's not great. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So I need to like be in the right sort of mindset to process that kind of, but yeah. So, so the, probably this movie's one of this movie's claim to fame is that this movie effectively ended blacklisting, like the process of accusing or condemning people in Hollywood of being communists or communist sympathizers, which would, they would get them, they would lose their jobs and lose their welfare led to, you know, these people, you know, getting harassed, threatened, some even took their own lives. Like it was this, you know, it pushed by conservative sort of right wing columnists like Hedda Hopper or the American, what is it, the the House Un-American? Yeah. What is it called? <laughs> the Un-American. Um, oh, crap. I also like had that tab up at some point. <laughs> yeah. Uh oh, it's it's oh, it's killing me. Uh, I just I just had it open too. Oh yeah, the House Un-American Activities Committee. That's it. Yeah, which are basically just going around and be like, like like you're a communist. Ironically, that's a very simple. That's like kind of a thing that happened in Rome under certain yeah. powers, like, like <laughs> yeah. Tiberius. You know, people like accusing each other of sedition and. Mm-hmm. You know, it lets this kind of witch hunt scare. And so there's the red scare, but but this movie was one of the forces that kind of put an end to it. So it's it's right, it's screenwriter Dalton Trumbo, who was one of the Hollywood 10. He's one of the most sort of he was probably the biggest name of all the people that got blacklisted. And he, when Kirk Douglas decided kind of last minute to credit Dalton with this film, and then later also uh, Otto. Uh, Preminger like credited him for writing Exodus, which came out, I think, the same year. And then there was protest over this movie. This movie is sort of politically charged, but then it sort of ended the blacklist. Dalton could begin to take credit for work he had done while he was blacklisted. Like he wrote the screenplay for The Brave One 
and for Roman Holiday, both of which won Academy Awards. Yeah. I just watched Trumbo. Like I finished it like not an hour ago. So I'm all nice. like up on this. And John Kennedy crossed the picket line to go see this film and endorsed it. And then the whole process of blacklisting kind of fell apart by and large. Which I think is so funny is you just need some guy to, to go say, yeah, this is good. Yeah. John Kennedy was like, it's a fine picture. <laughs> <laughs> it's like great thanks <laughs> but this movie has like undercurrents of that kind of left-wing Marxist sure. ideology and like the original novel it's based on by Howard Fast was written in response to the author being imprisoned for his affiliation with the Communist Party and it touches on these sort of like it's it's the plight of sort of oppressed proletariat classes there's, I had a quote from the author, a time would come when Rome would be torn down, not by the slaves alone, but by slaves and serfs and peasants and by free barbarians who joined them. And so long as men labored and other men took and used the fruit of the, those who labored, the name of Spartacus would be remembered, whispered sometimes and shouted loud and clear at other times. So the, uh, the author really envisioned, as that quote kind of in, it implies, Spartacus as this kind of left-wing Marxist hero for for the people as this movie this movie does it gets a little bit it was neutered a little bit mm -hmm. i was reading up that the studio was sort of eyeing this movie very very closely for a lot of reasons it was an incredibly expensive movie yeah uh, like a thousand extras yeah like, like the whole like spanish army was in this movie yeah <laughs> outside of madrid they had towers to like direct them or something mm -hmm. yeah so so it's also hey. it's uh, it, there's like a lot of like you could talk about this movie as a sort of piece of american film history as sort of in response to the red scare and mccarthyism just the the incorporation of nothing positive we can also talk about this film as a kubrick film yeah which is is sort of a different lens for me yeah. i think i haven't thought about it in that like way. as yeah it was like we were going like here's a, to put on our critical lens theorist hats <laughs> we've, we've like we've begun sort of our marxist interpretation of the film how this movie is really about people and systems and, and resisting oppression of the working classes or or the enslaved classes but then auteur theory this is also a kubrick film and this is one of like i when i was watching it i was like i forgot that it was a stanley kubrick film i don't necessarily i'm not super well versed in kubrick's whole filmography i haven't no. seen them all i um, know i'm not <laughs> yeah mostly like i like i really like full metal jacket and the shining are like kind of the big ones clockwork everyone loves that but this one doesn't feel like a kubrick film and actually kubrick himself has sort of denounced this film he and mostly it's because of his sort of lack of control. Like there were a lot of different, there was the Trumbo insert. Angle. There was Kirk, Kirk Douglas had a particular kind of idea of what he wanted. Like he wanted more of the love story right. kind of stuff. The reason yeah. Kirk Douglas wanted to do this movie, as so he claims in his autobiography is because he was passed up for the part of Ben-Hur. I heard and, this. <laughs> and so he found a similar story about another guy who sort of takes on Rome and he's like, <laughs> and then brings in Trumbo and yeah, then it's like they part revenge film. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I also heard that a lot of the battle scenes and like mm -hmm. the more bloodier, gorier parts that we might more associate with Stanley Kubrick were cut. I think mm -hmm. like 
there isn't a whole lot of blood even when gladiators are killing each other. And I think there's that one scene. Yes. He chops off a guy's arm. I was just about to bring that. There was a couple I was like, <laughs> there was in that battle, I was like, oh, I am watching a Kubrick film where a guy gets his arm like chopped right and off. And it like spurts blood. Yeah. And, it's like, and another dude like jumps in front of the camera and he's like covered in blood and he's screaming. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, so one of the one of the I was just reading in this book I I checked out from the library called Spartacus Film and History, edited Ooh. by Martin Winkler. There one of the art one of the chapters was talking about how Trumbo, when he saw the initial, well, first of all, so like Kubrick wasn't even the first director. Anthony Mann was the original director, and he shot basically just the quarry scene, and then Kubrick mm-hmm. came in later. By the way, Kubrick was 30 when he directed this movie. Which is insane. I know. I'm thinking about that's like one of those, like now having just turned 30 myself is like one of those depressing. I'm like, uh, I have, you know, like, man, I have directed no, uh, this is his fourth <laughs> film, but like. Hmm. Directed no Oscar worthy films yet yeah, in no. your life Colin <laughs> no not yet no I have not produced uh I have not directed Spartacus I have not directed a film that ended McCarthyism in Hollywood <laughs> or had a commanded a budget of something like 12 million dollars or however right. much it was but I read that like the one of the reasons that man was fired or kicked out or left was that he and Kirk Douglas were like too argumentative mm-hmm. and they like could not agree on anything yeah um but that it wasn't that much better with Stanley Kubrick there. Like they were oh, so yeah, no, apparently aggressive. Kubrick like butted heads with everyone <laughs> over this. And like he says, like this is part of this movie feels like the least Kubrick Kubrick film, partially because he had sort of the least control over it. There's like, in addition to like the gore, there's some Kubricky. Like Kubrick is sort of famous for being like incredibly particular and precise and really like almost OCD controlling over parts of his films. Like in the scene at the end where they have all of the bodies laid out, like all of those extras were numbered and they had to get into a particular place. And he like laid them out in a very specific setup, which is why it looks like a (laughs) Renaissance painting. But yeah, it does. It really does. (laughs) Uh, but like that kind of thing or yeah like you, you mentioned like he when he directed the battle scene with 8,000 extras he's like in this tower like commanding them we're like waving our hands around with like flags but truly I mean that is like impressive as hell I still look at that battle scene I'm like oh my god I can't believe yeah. I did this wow and that's yeah it's like not computer generated they're like mm-hmm. real people <laughs> yeah it's just like an actual army out there yeah um <laughs> Uh, but so I was reading that when Trumbo saw some of the screen tests for this movie, one of the things like Trumbo, I think wanted it, he originally had like a more radical political message as you might expect and sort of more in accordance with the source material or the novel. But after he saw the test screening and he did not like it. And he wrote in, in 72 hours, he wrote an 80 page response for Trumbo's like, here's all the problems I have with the movie. And and it was some stuff like he wanted more (laughs) battles. He wanted sort of montages. He wanted to, I think, really dwell on like, the various successes that the slave has, but kind of this chapter I was reading in this, this book was, was kind of boiled it down. Like the, the, the problem that Trumbo had was a dilemma between what he calls large Spartacus and small Spartacus, where the large Spartacus is the idea of Spartacus as this figure who had, who led this major revolt that like shook Rome all the way to its core and had a series of victories and he almost toppled the whole Roman empire. And then small Spartacus is, is basically, he just led a sort of small jailbreak revolt with, you know, sort of little victories and, and Trumbo's kind of problems that the film kind of wavers between large and small Spartacus and Trumbo wants, Trumbo thought like we should go large Spartacus, all big stuff. Like this guy almost undid Rome (laughs) root and stem. 
or root and stock. I don't know the expressions. I make my own expressions up. I'm Spartacus. <laughs> I'm Spartacus. Um, there you go. I should just like cut in like constant like I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. Like every time we every time we say Spartacus, like I go I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. <laughs> and then and then his criticism is that the film kind of turns towards small Spartacus and undermines the sort of significance of this character. Uh, and Trumbull wanted them to go all large Spartacus all the way. What does like the end of the movie look like for a large Spartacus? Because like, does he still? Do you think like? Is he still crucified on the Appian Way or? I mean, presumably, I think the like the idea must have been that like, I think part of it is might it might have been something like he almost marches on Rome itself or something okay. like that. Right. Which is something that historical sources are kind of. Yeah. Well, because like, and I don't know if we want to wait to actually get into the historical <laughs> Spartacus. But yeah, we have like sort of contradictory views. Yeah. Of so how how uh, actually problematic Spartacus was. And I think some of that is like the the politics of the people who put down the rebellion mm-hmm. and how much they wanted to aggrandize themselves yeah. via yeah. this victory. Absolutely. I mean, like many sort of, you know, it's, it's a cliche thing to say again, but like history is written by the victors, as we all know. Yeah. And also a lot of the way we have very little um, Spartacus. Mm-hmm. Most of what we have I, I, in the, I, I copied down a list of our sources, but Plutarch, Appian are kind of the biggest little bit mm-hmm. in Sallust, a couple of other sort of lesser known historians mm-hmm. like Velius Paterculus, Florus, Frontinus, Erosius, some of these I've never even heard of. Um, <laughs> And they themselves are, one, most of them written way after the fact, influenced by the intervening decades and centuries, two, have very different internal views. Like, I think Appian is more of the, like, aggrandizes it. He's like, Spartacus Mm -hmm. almost was going to march on Rome. But, But as a result, like, Spartacus as a historical figure is very shadowy to us. Yeah, yeah, because there, it's like his name and the fact that he was from Thrace, I mm-hmm. think, is probably like the most thing that everybody agrees on. Yeah. And that he was a gladiator and that they escaped from a gladiator school in Capua. Like yeah. that is that is yeah. the and, and it, and it ends base. Yeah, it, that's exactly it ends basically there. And like yeah. one of the the main contested issues is what the, the, the larger motivations of mm-hmm. Spartacus's revolt. So it, it this to like contextualize a little bit in Roman history, we call this event the Third Servile War, which as its name implies, there were two other major slave revolts uh, in Roman history, particularly in this period of the Republic. This was the last big one. The other ones were in Sicily, I believe, at least one of them was, which Mm -hmm. is where, just again, historical context was where most of Rome got their food. It was kind of like a grain belt area Mm -hmm. for Italy. So it it had large sort of slave populations. And I mean, the Roman world itself was, slavery was, was everywhere. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Slavery in itself, I think we should come back to mm-hmm. at some point. But yeah, yeah let's, the, let's put a pin in it right now. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like the what I understand is the two sort of like varying emotions is just like Spartacus and some of these other gladiators were like, let's just not be slaves anymore. And they mm-hmm. sort of go out into the hills and maybe try to get out of Italy at some point versus the whole let's like stop slavery from existing (laughs) yeah like an abolitionist yeah Yeah. and as i was sort of reading it as i sort of remembered and as i was kind of reviewing that the general consensus i think among historians now is that there's not really any there's nothing that says he wasn't 
say an abolitionist, but there's nothing to suggest that that was part of his sort of larger motivation outside of just their own personal liberation. Yeah, because there are very few abolitionist, true abolitionist figures in ancient history that Mm -hmm. we know of. Yeah. And some of them advocate it for like not the reasons you would expect sometimes. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Like most more modern and like in our own sort of early modern and modern in history and engagement with slavery is we've kind of come back around to the idea of like human dignity and that it is morally reprehensible to enslave another human being. And it is a violation of sort of personal liberties and, and, you know, natural or not natural order, but like natural law. And that like, as we as thinking, living, feeling human beings should not be subjected to that kind of harm. Right. That is not so much a thing. No. Ancient thought, like some of the arguments that people make for like not having slaves are more about like, because making slave, because, because having slaves like makes you lazy and corrupt, like you, the slave owner, it's not necessarily like. Yes. Or that like people need to have jobs. So don't give it to a slave. That's what I think. Yeah. Or like some weird. Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, back to, back to Spartacus sort of for the moment that one, I think, and I think this bit is in Plutarch where. One of the big confusing points in what we sort of know or was gleaned from Spartacus's history is who he leads, like you said, he revolts from Capua from a Lanista, which is like a gladiator trainer. I have a fun story about this act. Not <laughs> the, way, the way I phrased that made it sound like I have a fun story about revolting from a gladiator trainer in Capua, which is not what I meant. But but I want to get back to Capua in a second. But he wrote, he revolted and then he grows that he defeats a couple of small Roman forces and then his movement grows. At some point, we think he made it something like 70,000 people in his yeah, like, but and like the higher, like you know, aggrandized uh, numbers get up to like what the million mark or something, but it probably a, wasn't that. <laughs> there's a whole, yeah. I mean, the dealing with numbers in ancient sources is tricky business. I, my own advisor, I was, who's been and friend of the show, guest on the show, Ayelet Hansen Lushkov, was giving a paper about numbers and plenty a oh, few yeah. months ago that I saw about how like like the motivation behind because some authors will drop like ridiculously huge numbers on you. Yeah. Herodotus most famously. Absolutely. <laughs> when he says something in the effect of like Xerxes crossed into Greece with like 250,000 soldiers or something like that. You're like, yeah, a quarter of a million yeah, Persians. Sure. <laughs> Anyways, the thing I'm taking a slow time to get to is that as Spartacus's revolt is growing, he at one point, I think in Plutarch, he gets to the Alps. And presumably that's like once you got to the Alps, like you, that was it. He was at Freedom's Gate. He could have, they could have just peaced out and they turn around and go back into Italy and continue there which is kind of like whoa what was going on there was it you know did they not did they want to maybe they had a good thing going they wanted to keep the train rolling or (laughs) was there different you know and there seemed to be maybe different sort of factions within the movement like spartacus is the name that survives but he didn't necessarily exert like direct control over the whole yeah rebellion like yeah. other Crixus is another name that gets thrown around a lot. Yeah, because yeah, I think there are a couple names that do get thrown out with Spartacus. It's just like the people who escaped from the mm-hmm. from Capua. But yeah, it's also like who wants to try to cross the Alps? That sounds really hard. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then so the alternative plan was maybe they would go down south to make it cut a deal with these Cilician pirates who are just a, a famous sort of. This was right around the time that actually Pompey's waging war on the pirates, right? Yep. Yeah. Piracy was, was a big problem. And yep. and well, historically, like Pompey is one of the people who supposedly helped actually kill all of these slaves. Mm-hmm. 
So I don't know. I mean, the skeleton of the narrative is there mm-hmm. technically. Yeah. So yeah, it's, you know, there's but a lot it, that you can do with that story. It's, yeah, no, it's kind of the perfect in a, in a ways because we have this like silhouette, yeah. which gives you so much freedom to kind of color in the lines and, and thus exactly. we can generate this like sort of very, not, I mean, relatively leftist, progressive kind of mm-hmm. story that I sort of taking, like, which is the thing I love so much about this movie is it's the courage to be about sort of people, res- like large groups of people resisting systems of oppression, which is a little bit, you know, like touches on things that we care sure. about now. Yeah, um, no, exactly. <laughs> I was going to say my capitalist story. Oh, yes, um, please. My, so my, I kind of buried the lead a little bit, but my experience with Spartacus was I, when I was an undergrad and I was in Italy, I was uh, living in Italy for a semester doing ancient Roman stuff. And I gave a presentation about Spartacus at Capua. Like it was actually in, it wasn't in the amphitheater. Capua, by the way, today is a wonderful site that if you have the opportunity, once you can travel safely, that our listeners should visit. It's really cool. I think it actually, it's stadium, I would go out and say is better than the Coliseum. Ooh. That might be a contentious. Fired. I say it's better for, for a couple of reasons. One, okay. It's way less crowded. Well, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, it's way, and it's it's. I mean, outside of the trouble of getting to Capua, it's much more navigable. Like you can go in and walk around. There's a real the substructure is super cool. Like you can so go into cool. the, you can go into the substructure of the arena, and there's like little like it's kind of like in the basement around the outside of the ring, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And there's like all of these different walkways, and they have like little drainage. Sweet. It's real. If you're into like sewers or water or drainage and that kind of thing, no, I am. Yeah. <laughs> It's so, it, and there's a really nice museum. There's like a little museum kind of attached to it. So I gave a presentation about Spartacus in that museum. I mean, this was now almost ten years ago. Oh, <laughs> baby this would have been in, this would have been in like the spring of 2011 or something like that. Oh, um, so like almost actually almost exactly ten years ago. Uh, Wild. Oh, what a what a what a fool I was. I apologize for everyone who knew 20 year old Colin. <laughs> baby Colin. Uh, yeah. So have uh, you seen this movie before? Yes. One, uh, not actually before I gave that presentation, but okay. I think I saw it for the first time in college or something like that. This was not the first time I've seen this movie, but I hadn't seen it in a while. Um, so I had not seen this whole movie. I feel oh, like really? everybody has like seen the Spartacus scene. I'm Spartacus. And the parodies. Um, and- I'm and Spartacus. the parodies. I'm Spartacus. Of course. I think when I told Nick that I was watching Spartacus, he went and played an old Pepsi ad where they're yeah. like holding up a Pepsi and it's this Spartacus clip. Wait, seriously? Like, I'm Spartacus. Yes. Oh my god. Go, yeah, that. go I, I Google the Spartacus Pepsi ad. <laughs> take this take this moment of human solidarity in the face of oppressive <laughs> regimes and you turn into a captain. I'm like yep. Uh, I mean, if if we weren't made it clear, like I lean a little bit towards that end, of, towards the left end of the spectrum, <laughs> but the, like the, the, that's such a slap in the face. I know this like capitalist bullshit, hellscape. Oh. Yeah, oh. Um, but that's that's what he played for me. So yeah, that I had seen that clip before in mm-hmm. like an ancient history class. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel kind of cheated almost that we didn't get to watch the whole movie. Yeah, because. I think there are more things that you can actually talk about besides just that like five minute yeah. clip. It's yeah, it's it's one of those things that it gets extracted from its source material so much that it like loses it like yes. grows new meaning independent of its original context. Exactly. Hence the Pepsi commercial. 
I mean, this is like, this is a common, I mean, like how many times we wring our hands where like a political campaign uses a song that is like indirect <laughs> conflict with their own ideology. I'm thinking like, obviously most famous is Reagan using born in the USA or yep. Yep. was it, was it Trump? What did he play? What did Trump play? It was like YMCA oh. when he left office or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that was really funny. <laughs> like songs that, or um, there was, an, I, I think it was, it might've been Creedence Clearwater or there was some band that, that like had like a cease and desist or, or something. Yeah. I remember that. I'm trying to remember who it was. It might've been John Fogarty. I lost my train of thought. I know. Uh, I was like, where were we? I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, a couple of things. So we, we can come back to, if you want to talk about slavery in ancient Rome or. Yeah, I can, we can, we can start with that. So I think, I think it's surprising that there is a movie like from the sixties about ancient slavery kind of, because just in like a, you know, trends of scholarly attention, mm-hmm. slavery itself has sort of gone up and down um, but more recently, people have been really, really interested in talking about lives of slaves, motivations of slaves, and, you know, how uh, human beings whose, again, names aren't, you know, written on monuments, mm-hmm. et cetera, sort of lived in the ancient world. And I think back in the 1960s, this was not necessarily <laughs> yeah. the biggest topic, nor the thing that we, like, really even knew that much about a lot of archaeology in the past, you know, 70 years has done quite a lot to illuminate the lives of enslaved individuals. And so for a while, I think we would, we has like a scholarly bubble or whatever, um, have said that like, oh, ancient slavery wasn't that bad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I I do think that that's kind of bullshit. Uh, And it surprised me how much this movie in the 60s really harped on just the terrible living conditions of ancient slaves and Mm -hmm. how shitty that was and how terrible it is. And I think it does maybe sort of hit at a a problematic turn when we think of the 1960s as also like civil rights movement Mm -hmm. and how, you know, all of the slaves in this movie are white people. (laughs) Except for Draba. Except for one guy who dies. Yeah. And absolutely. I was thinking about that, like the one person of color enslaved individual in this movie dies and like granted that does kind of kick off almost kicks off it's a it's a good scene i mean i think it's a very like sort of poignant scene but it's powerful um, for sure but yeah like actually one of my favorite scenes right before that just talking about how this movie is like the i mean to say like kind of blanket statement like I think we are, you're right. I think that we, as like the scholarly consensus is walking back because there was a tendency to read slavery sort of in contrast to early modern um, and American slavery. And and, and it is a, a sort of a slightly different op- institution in the way it operated, but it is no less sort of horrific and oppressive and bad. And like, that's kind of. Well, I, would say, I think like a lot of the whole ancient slavery apologists, we mm-hmm. sort of want to, you know, glorify Rome and Romans and sort of it can be problematic to do that if mm-hmm. these people are also horrifically enslaving other people and treating other human yeah. beings and mm-hmm. other white people, I guess, mm-hmm. as inhuman. <laughs> yeah. So that my favorite scene I was about to say, where one of my favorite scenes is pretty early on where they he's in the gladiator barracks. Uh, and they and they bring out the the woman. They bring out Verinia. And at first, he's like kind of. It's almost like the way Vinicius is in Kowaz, where he's like kind of aggressive and he's sort of like yeah. leering and touching her. And then 
Badiatis and and Marcellus are like kind of watching and laughing at him from above. And then Kirk Douglas has this moment where he goes like, I am not an animal. Like, you know, he has a statement of human dignity. And then Varinius says, neither am I. And then you can see, that's like my favorite scene because you can see a click in his head. He's like, holy shit. Like, you're, yeah. like there's a moment of like self-reflection and realization of like his own sort of perpetuating mm-hmm. Which is also why I really like the character, or I don't like the character. I like the idea of the character of Marcellus as the figure who formerly is a pr- former oppressed individual, but after mm-hmm. once he's sort of free of it, continues the system on, you know, right. and when, when Marcellus, the gladiator trainer, you know, is free, he just goes and perpetuates and trains more gladiators. And he's, exactly. you know, doesn't, yeah. he participates in the system that, um, yeah. he like, he reminds me kind of of like Sam Jackson's character in Django. Uh, mm-hmm. like very yeah. similar idea and but I like really they they have to make like a conscious decision later to sort of break that system right mm-hmm. so he's like oh you're watching the Romans fight each other and Spartacus is like I don't want to watch two people fight to the death even if mm-hmm. they are Romans and it's like mm-hmm. they're consciously yeah that. yeah exactly because because they were the sort of originally when they first sort of break out they were just going to turn it right back around exactly. um and then the whole i mean again this is our my ideology sort of leaking through but like that's just <laughs> just reversing the flow doesn't change like the system of power that enables this kind of treatment is still in place and it's just gonna shift or whatever yeah. uh yeah i think it's also very reflective of actual ancient slavery in which like freed people owned slaves and we mm-hmm. know this about the ancient world we know mm-hmm. that people who were once enslaved did then turn around and own slaves yeah um, it was that i think ingrained into social culture mm-hmm. that that's how that functioned and i don't think that we can be apologists about that i think no. we have to have yeah. to talk about it well said and yeah i mean just general like other notes and like what what I love so much about this movement in this movie is like is they have that kind of they carry through that solidarity to the end when in, in the famous I'm Spartacus scene where they mm-hmm. you know Antoninus and and the other guys kind of all rally behind and, and it's very powerful because like that's why I think another thing I like about this movie is that whereas in say like Quobatus Marcus Vinicius basically just wins it's it's the sort right. of fa- it's a fantasy of a guy who has everything and he just never has to lose which a lot of movies are it's like yes the, the, it's, it, they just keep on winning apparently one of I think it was Kubrick's criticisms of Spartacus is actually that that Spartacus himself doesn't have enough quirks or flaws like he's like a little bit too <laughs> too straight laced he can't Maybe. read he cannot re- read yeah and he's kind of always right. That's the, that's, you know, yeah. but, but he, in the end he loses, which is kind of what yeah. he loses sort of the, the physical battle to Crassus, but he wins a larger moral victory, which is I really, I think is like kind of the best part of the story, sure. you know, whereas other sort of crappier stories would, I don't know, Spartacus would win or they'd find some way to massage it where he like somehow wins in the long run, yeah. but he yeah. doesn't win at least like sort of formally, like he, his revolt is ended and, his life is taken. His wife and child managed to escape and find freedom. Which I was but... kind of surprised. I did mm-hmm. not actually see that coming. I was like, yeah. oh, yay. Well, I, w- <laughs> nice. I want to come back around to Gracchus because he's like maybe my favorite part of this movie. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but he wins this, the larger ideological victory, which yeah. I think is poignant and and is what is sort of good about this movie. Yeah, I I have something on, I think, just like the characterization. Mm -hmm. And again, this is really just a total opposite of Quo Wattis in the entire romance. I Mm, really liked like after the, you know, their initial meeting, Spartacus and Verenia, they have this sort of like 
kind of very touching moments where like Mm -hmm. she's pouring him water and he just like touches her hand he asks Mm -hmm. her if she's okay she like pours water on somebody Uh, yeah and it's oh i hate glamorous that guy that guy felt that that guy fell straight out of martha's vineyard and he's like he was so it was a great great casting choice but he was like the perfect like he was like this wasp one percenter like like they're only slaves let me go to you know where like if he if he were today that guy would wear a sweater tied around his neck and like boat shoes and dockers exactly but yeah but, and then when they when they are reunited they have just sort of this like almost hysterical like mm-hmm. laughter that mm-hmm. just they seem like very genuine like traumatized people who are actually happy to see each other <laughs> yeah like like i said like in contrast to, to kuwadis where it's kind of a creepy one-sided a possessive and aggressive relationship yeah and then even in cleopatra where the anthony cleopatra is like weirdly felt contrived or deeply toxic in some way Why? Uh, where this like I was like man this romance is like quite refreshing where it's like I could like they did seem to genuinely show they have great chemistry and they show affection for one another and they care Mm -hmm. about each other and like are very tender and they like laugh together which I feel Mm -hmm. like isn't something that we've really seen there's like you know it's always so like serious and I love you but they have these very like happy real moments yeah they like joke with each other and yeah. tease and like in a way that like real you know people do exactly um, so yeah, yeah it, was, it was yeah there's never a scene where spartacus like gets mad and like smashes a bunch of stuff or no like, <laughs> um like he, he's a pretty after their initial encounter he's like they're always sort of nice to one another exactly um, and so i believe the romance and i want them to succeed which is exactly. just effective um storytelling yeah. yeah so yeah so points for that I don't know. Do you have anything about like Kirk Douglas? Anything? Um, I can't. I mean, this is my own confession. I can't get over his chin a little bit. Oh my god! I was like, I was like, is there something there? Is there dirt in his chin? I just mm-hmm. want to like touch it. <laughs> I just want to poke it. <laughs> yeah, he just has. I mean, he just he just has a, a great chin. Great it, with like a capital yeah. G. Great isn't Pompey the Great. <laughs> <laughs> I I have no strong feelings about Kirk Douglas. I thought he was maybe a little bit boring. Yeah. Um, but I think that might also just be the character. Yeah. Uh, he's sort of like a stoic. He doesn't, you know, speak a yeah. whole lot. He was a little, um, a little cipher-like. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but it didn't well, bother me. There's a weirdness. So I was saying, I just watched Trumbo, the 2015 movie about Dalton Trumbo who wrote mm-hmm. Spartacus. And it kind of ends, the, the final act basically of that movie is sort of about Spartacus and they have the they have a new actor um Dean O'Gorman who is Philly in the Hobbit movies he plays Kirk Douglas in Trumbo weird I would never have recognized him yeah they, they do something like it's kind of that weird like he kind of looks like Kirk Douglas but not really but there's a scene where they're watching test footage of Spartacus and it's the scene with Drava when he throws the trident and he refuses. It's that scene. Oh. And they basically like kind of digitally like superimpose <laughs> Dean Gorman's face onto Kirk Douglas. Um, it's real weird because you can kind of see the, you know, because like we're, I mean, this was in 2015. Yeah. And not that we haven't exactly cracked the code on the like that kind of like digital, like recreating dead actors and things yeah. like, like, you know, there's like all Star Wars, I feel like does this mm-hmm. the most where you've got like Cary Grant. No, not Carrie Grant, Jesus, Carrie Fisher. Fisher. But like, yeah, where they, oh, yeah. Or like, or Luke Skywalker, <laughs> you saw The Mandalorian, where they got yeah, young yeah, Luke yeah. Skywalker. But so they they do that, and you, so like they they play that scene as the original footage, but then it's got 
Dino Gorman sort of face. So it kind of looks like it looks a lot like Kirk Douglas, but you can tell it's not. And you can also kind of see like where, like I was oh, looking really close and you can kind of see like where the neck, like where the seams are a little bit. It's yeah. it's a little surreal. It's not long. It's a really brief part of the movie and it's not really like super integral, but it was strange. Um, <laughs> so weird. It is. Yeah, it was, it's real weird. But the characters, actually, the other characters I really want to talk about are the politicians, basically, like Crassus and Gracchus and Caesar. Do you well, have any? I I thought I was like, Gracchus? Gracchus? Yeah, yeah. Gracchus? I, I did a whole deep dive because I myself was deeply confused because, so context, there are two very famous politicians in Roman history, Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus. There are these brothers. They essentially advocated for the power of the plebs for the lower classes in Rome. They were sort of popularists leading these sort of movements in that branch of politics. It was very divisive. They were, there was a, it was a lot of political violence, but the point of confusion for Eli and I is that this happened in like the 120s BC, decades before most of these characters would have been born. And so I was like, is this supposed to be like the Gracchi is there another Gracchus who was actually alive at the time that was like hanging out with Caesar and I was like pulling my hair out being like have I just forgotten something really important about Roman history and so in the novel it is basically inspired by Gaius Gracchus it's it's just sort of a transposition of it's kind of like he's he's loosely Gaius Gracchus like the one but he would have been like a hundred years old or something like that (laughs) um that's so funny yeah, because I, I was like, that can't possibly be. No. <laughs> yeah, I like had to do math in my head. I was like, wait. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he was he was very fun, just like as a character. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he was very entertaining to watch. And I loved the scene where he comes out of the Senate with Caesar and like buys a chicken yeah. for, for sacrifice. And he's like mm-hmm. holding this live chicken and I think it's Caesar, right? Who says yeah, it's, yeah, like, yeah. And he's, he's talking about whether or not he believes in the gods. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, you know, privately, of course I don't. Neither do you. And publicly, I believe in them all. <laughs> yeah. It got me. I really loved that interaction. I thought it was yeah. great. He had a lot. I, he, I literally like he has a whole bit where he talks about like how he like doesn't trust skinny people. Um, yes. <laughs> like, we are corpulent. Yeah. Or just at the end in his final movement, one of my other like little touches is he like he's looking at the daggers he's going to use to take his own life. And he's like, I'm going to go with the pretty one. <laughs> I know. It's so funny. He was great. Yeah. Yeah. And he's just kind of great. Yeah, He frees. He frees Varinia at the end. He's, you know, he's sort of instrumental. He's sort of conspiring. And he has that, that undercurrent of like that he is this politician sort of for the masses, whereas Crassus represents the absolute elite 1%. Yeah. And they have that argument about, or I don't remember if it's Crassus and Gracchus or Crassus and Caesar, where it's like one is like Rome is the mob and Crassus mm-hmm. is like, no, Rome is like an idea from God or something like that. Just, I mean, it just goes back to sort of age old sort of conflict in Rome between patricians and plebeians and sort of upper and lower classes and where people fell and senatorial ranks and non-senatorial ranks. Yeah, I just, I just like, you know, and so Gracchus was sort of there. I mean, he's there with Caesar and I have two thoughts about Caesar, which is one, he's too sexy. Um, <laughs> he almost like, he looked like- oddly a, pretty. He was like, he, I was thinking like he reminds me of like a, he's like the version one of like Henry Cavill or something like that. Like there's I that scene where- that he, too. When he's what in the bath. Like Henry Cavill looking mother- he look yeah he like looks like he he's in the when he's in the bathhouse and he comes out I was like man Caesar's cut um in a way that like is unusual like he just seemed weirdly yeah. buff like a compa- Kendall he's like yeah. this 
so my first thought is, is very, very, this is probably the sexiest uh, version of Caesar we have yet to see. And two is that he, this is another case where we were kind of talking about the like historical determinism mm-hmm. in a yeah. film. Like Caesar's not in this film because he really does anything. Like he, he's not yeah. integral to the plot. No. He doesn't really do much. He's just sort of there as like a witness to all of this. Yeah. Just kind of hanging out in the background, but he's there because it's Caesar and we know it's Caesar. And so this, I think we're supposed to understand that this is a formative experience for Caesar that's going to later influence his his political career and all the decisions he's going to make. But that's really all I have to say about Caesar. I was kind of sad, though, that we had Caesar doing nothing and we didn't have Pompey. Like, I think they talk about Pompey. They do. It's it's like he was actually influential and like did stuff in the Mm -hmm. Third Servile War. I think it would have been fun to see Pompey. I had like a Mandela effect moment where I, if you were to ask me before I rewatched it, is Pompey in this movie? I would have said yes. I was like, yeah, I remember that. Like, there's a scene with Pompey, right? No, there's no, there's no Pompey scene. No, I think they just, they say his name Mm -hmm. um, because they talk about him like also bringing an army right yeah his his is one of the armies that shows up yeah Um, but yeah i was like oh we just have caesar because we all know his name i want (laughs) i want more i want more pompey yeah and uh, yeah we actually don't we don't get a lot of pompey just in film generally he's considering how integral he is right like in in cleopatra he's he, he starts off dead uh, right. Yep. <laughs> he's in the HBO's Rome. That's really the main one I can think about Pompey. Yeah. Um, I can't think outside of that. I'm sure there's other ones, but there's not a lot of Pompey. There's not um, a lot of Pompey. I mean, he, he was pretty. It was pretty wild. He sort of famously, he was one of the three most powerful men in Rome, or would be. Also, yeah. like single-handedly ended piracy. Uh, <laughs> well, like Crassus that, being the other one, right? Like Crassus yeah. is the other like super mm-hmm. crazy wealthy mm-hmm. one in the some good Crassus first stories. Yeah, yeah. He, he was so wealthy, supposedly, that he could personally finance. He was like freaking Jeff Bezos or something like that. Like, yes. he could personally finance his own legion. Like, he could just pay for an, like a 5,000 <laughs> soldiers just out of pocket. That's how rich he was. Yeah. Um, or didn't he also have like um, the privatized fire department equivalent? Yes. And yes. Then, like, yes. If yeah. Your house was on fire. He would like <laughs> stand outside and be like, pay me money and I'll put yeah. it out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was worse than that. He or supposedly. And yeah, he was like, he's the great example of why privatization. We're saying this in Texas as we just had our own run. Oh, yeah. We're filming, we're, we're filming, we're recording this on January 26th. So we're basically a week out from Texas's whole power grid kind of uh, uh, eating shit for lack of a better word. <laughs> but so yeah, the crisis would, he would, when your house caught fire, he would show up with his own personal fire brigade because that wasn't like sort of fire safety wasn't, or at least sort of state-funded fire safety wasn't a thing yet. It wouldn't be until after Augustus. But he would show up with his own personal fire brigade and offer to buy your house, and he would just wait as your house burned down to drive the price down, and then until you eventually caved, and then he would buy your house sort of at a fraction of its of what it would should be worth and then put it out. And then so he ended up buying up a bunch of real estate in Rome that way. So messed up. Real classy move. I Got mean, his muffins though. I was about to say he did he he did kind of go out like a chump where he uh marched an army into Parthia and the uh the Parthians uh killed him and stole an eagle and it was a huge fiasco. <laughs> kind of a big faux pas on his part. Um mm-hmm. but he was uh yeah wealthier than than God. Uh, yeah, I think his his house was the one in the movie where it was like that giant swimming pool and all mm-hmm. the yeah, yeah. like we, that we, works. That we tracks. haven't mentioned, but there's that there's that scene. So this movie, probably the one that you and I watched, was a restoration that was made recently, and they added in some footage that wasn't in the original cut. 
the most famous of which being the scene with Lawrence Olivier and Tony Curtis played Antoninus, where he's talking about this is one of the things I didn't really like about the movie is, is Crassus is kind of, there's this whole thing where they have that conversation, but like, do you prefer snails or oysters? Uh-huh. And it's just like veiled. I mean, not that veiled, but it's just talking about sort of Crassus's like bisexuality uh-huh. or something. And it's framed as like kind of just his own, as like part of his like vice and his greed and his sort of indulgence yeah. and gluttony and things like that. So I was like, and that, that part didn't sit with me, but what I was going to say is the, the interesting part is Lawrence Olivier obviously was, not alive. And so his lines were spoken. They didn't have the dialogue. His lines were re-recorded by Anthony Hopkins. That's awesome. <laughs> so in that scene, it's it's Anthony Hopkins actually speaking. Wow. As he has the, and if you go back and listen, you can kind of hear it. I didn't realize it at all, <laughs> but then I went until I read that that fact. That's cool though. Yeah. But yeah, Crassus is in this movie. He's he's the he's the elite. He's the the bad guy, I guess. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, he's the main yeah. villain. Yeah. Um, but just like, you know, the super rich bad guy yeah who wants to sort of didn't have that much more characterization but he maybe Mm. like gets the sort of personal vendetta against spartacus toward the end Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah because spartacus kind of like shows the cracks in 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 the the system kind of yeah he exposes the the fragility and and sort of slave revolts for something that the romans took very very seriously Mm -hmm. um you know, they're sort of where I mean, they had three big wars about this, but and they did, at least as sources tell us, they did crucify all of Spartacus's men. Yep. From I think from Capua all the way to Rome. It was I forget Which, how Yeah, it has to be seriously horrifying. Yeah, it's, it was what they thousands. say, six thousand people or something like that. Yep. That's yeah, real um real real bleak stuff. Yeah. So yeah, we should not talk about how slavery was not not that yeah. bad. <laughs> no, but uh, which leads us also to the other character that we uh, again we were hitting on our recurring theme of actors who tend to crop up in movies, but we got Peter Ustinov uh, again. Yes, I loved him. He was great. He, he was so smarmy and terrible, but his like little off one-liners were <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> yeah, he. I I really like that character. He did win an Academy Award for supporting actor for this. Oh, I'm um, so glad. And yeah, I because I, I think this character in I think this is just testimony that he's a really good actor. But in the hands of someone sort of less competent actor, that character would have been really one note. He would have just been yes. this like kind of whiny, mm-hmm. you know, crappy. But like he he has this like sense of hu- there's like a humor to him that like makes even though he kind of sucks, but you really enjoy seeing him. He's really yeah. like he's just delightful kind of in this like perverse <laughs> way. And all yeah. of his conversations with Gracchus are really wonderful. And you can kind of see he kind of comes around and Gracchus sort of like, he like gets a shred of dignity by mm-hmm. the end because he he rescues Verinia and leads her to freedom. Yeah. He gets whipped by Crassus. I mean, he's, I <laughs> he's sort of motivated by, because he's basically, I'm not going to give up something for nothing. And then Gracchus kind of teases him like, oh, are you growing a spine all of a sudden? I know. It's like add courage to your list of. Um, mm-hmm. growing virtues or something so i think like yeah much in the same way that nero i think was our favorite part of quotas the yeah the um Batiatis is i mean they really flesh that character out because i think all we know yeah. about all we just have his name right in terms of the mm-hmm. historical yeah. just his um, name and that he like owned some gladiators <laughs> mm-hmm. but yeah i think it's it's so interesting to have to like have this person as not elite mm-hmm. as like gracchus or crassus but also not like a lowly enslaved yeah. person or something he's sort of like trying to claw his way 
into mm-hmm. the elite. He has that bust of himself at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I think it's so funny. He's like trying to be this super, you know, wealthy I don't know, society man. And yeah, everyone's like playing that game, right? Like yeah. they're trying to like accrue social and literal capital. And yeah, and he know. yeah he sort of yeah gains maybe some some self awareness and some dignity as he says mm-hmm. toward yeah. the end. Yeah, just delightful. I Which love it. leads me also because I'm thinking about his. So have you seen, I think we might have watched it together, but the more recent show, Spartacus? Yes. <laughs> I've uh, seen the first season. I know they made at least three. I think so. That sounds right. But the main actor, I know, died of cancer, so mm-hmm. he was replaced at some point. Yeah. I don't they, think they, I saw a, anything with his replacement. The show took like a weird had a weird sort of arc. And I never, I think I, I too, I think I saw the first season and then never really got past. But like the body ass character in that is sort of the opposite of, he's just like creep. It's, it's, what's his name? The guy from the mummy. Jonathan from the mummy. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know his real name. I just know him as Jonathan. It's the only other thing I. I've seen him in. Yeah. He is. John, John Hanna. He is very one note, creepy. Yeah, he doesn't have a whole like am, like ambitious creepy dude is his whole character. <laughs> and and did, did that show in general? I don't have much to say about it other than it's just three hundred. Like it took all the wrong lessons from three hundred, and yes. it's just more of that. Like it's it's very clear. Like the the it's got that same kind of like that the way it's like lit and has that like filter over it um, mm-hmm. of like that and sort of CGI blood splatter. I I remember like there's so many gratuitous shots of like when they have the gladiator fights of just the crowd losing their freaking minds. It's like there's like a yeah. there's like a fountain of blood and all the crowd is like going nuts. <laughs> it's like in slow motion. You can see like clothes are like falling off and people are like <laughs> naked or they're like eating yeah. each other alive it's like dude everyone's like calm down um <laughs> what bothered me so much about that movie and maybe this is a really weird point but all of the women wore like crazy push-up bras like their <laughs> boobs were all smashed together and i'm like that didn't that's not how this is not the first time you brought this up i think works. right <laughs> Probably because this is, I think, a, this is a recurring <laughs> g- grievance of yours. <laughs> like, why are your boobs doing that? That's not how ancient clothing works. Uh, um, which I something that I appreciated about HBO's Rome is that women looked normal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the women don't look normal in Spartacus. <laughs> yeah, it's all it's all dialed. I mean, that's I guess the that's the aesthetic is is that sort yeah, of dialed, dialed up dialed to a thousand. Eleven, yeah. Um, and it has like weirdly like has just like weird masculinity to the whole thing. It's yeah. like uh, I don't yeah I don't really have much to say about the show. Maybe we might cover it later. Maybe not. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know if it's quite as. Nah, I don't know. I, I part of it is like we like whatever we do, we might just be overthinking it. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, we're at about it. We're we're a little over an hour, but any other? I think if I had something else. This movie was the uh, it was Univer- it was Universal Studios' biggest money maker until Airport, which I guess was only ten years later. But um, I mean, that's a good long while. Yeah, no, I mean this this movie. I, I, I the more I talk and think about it, the more I like this movie, and I like the idea of this movie. I like what it can be. Yes, I, I like the I like that this is a case where you can really. I think I said this already, but this is a case where you can use ancient history to tell not only a very sort of modern story or modern something that appeals to modern issues, but one that it's also appeals to sort of more progressive, say, politics or like to talk about these kinds of using the ancient world to talk about issues like enslavement and oppression 
systems of power, things like that. I like that this this is like a, a gives me sort of hope um, that we can have stories like this. I mean, we you've yet to really realize them. And I think even ones that do are very one note about that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But like it can be done. Yeah, um, it can be done. Mm-hmm. It's a nice way to end. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why I like, yeah, that's that's my I, I liked this movie because it it shows it it's it's this brilliant and very like sort of optimistic could be. Uh mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm still waiting for my sort of Marxist hero. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this is my own, like, I I may have said this before, but, like, I don't know. To me, like, I think, like, people sort of joke, like, what radicalized you? And for me, it was, like, learning about Roman history, like, definitely, (laughs) like, pushed my politics further left. Because it's just, like, so many repeated institutions of, like, just... The like there's so many points of Roman history that would sort of blithely summarize the the plebs being like, could we have more, and the patricians being like, no. <laughs> when all they That's really so true, yeah. yeah. And and or just like you know the upper classes like had they you know so many problems could have just been avoided had people been less greedy or you know less attached to their power or just you know just if if, if the patricians had just yielded just a little bit of money and power and, and political sway like even a, a fraction things where they could have avoided a lot of grievance but yeah or just like real human suffering like mm-hmm. we have you know the ability to alleviate real human suffering mm-hmm. and it's like why don't we do it mm-hmm. because greed <laughs> yeah so that's just we'll, we'll end on that uh we'll, you know, <laughs> with uh federalize it um regulate <laughs> i don't care if we lose listeners we only have like 60 anyways <laughs> i count i, ch- I check frequently Nah, it's it's not sad. It is no, sad. I'm saying we have 60. I'm so happy. <laughs> we have actually a fair. We have a total. We have over 300 listens. Awesome. Closer to closing in on 400. Good uh, for us. Oh, yeah, it's also been good. We've been doing this a lot longer than I realized. Um, it has been a while. Yeah. Because I really because one of the the places where I check it says has like in the last 90 days or of all time, and so it goes beyond 90 days. We've been doing yeah. it longer than 90 days. Which leads me, the, the thing that I always should plug at the end, but we forget to, is that we are on, obviously, Stitcher and Spotify and Apple, but leave reviews, follow us, subscribe, particularly on uh, Apple Podcasts, that really helps. We have three reviews. One of them is me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh, like other people don't do that? <laughs> I know they do. I just do. think that's wonderful. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so leave us five stars. If it's not five stars, I don't want to hear it. You can fight me after work. Um, <laughs> and uh, oh, and you can follow us on Twitter at, at Dig Movies and follow Eli too. Oh, yeah. I don't do much on my Twitter, but I do. I'm so bad at Twitter. Twitter stresses me I, out. I mean, so it really stresses me out every time I try to do something. I'm like, oh, nope, it's bad. I hate it. I because I think like part of like being good at like a, a huge part of just being good at Twitter is just being present and just being like active, and liking and, and, a lot of things. And yeah, and, like talk, con- like participating. Yeah. And for me, the way I fr- the way I phrase it is communicating with other people via electronic media like either if it's writing an email to someone or like tweeting someone is the most like labor intensive process to me yes. so i tend not to do which is why i put off writing emails particularly <laughs> emails where i need to ask for something i hate doing that it stresses me out and it's like emotionally exhaustive there were like yes. early days in the pandemic where i would spend like my whole work day would be like <laughs> drafting a one email um, i have done that yes oh my uh, god yeah <laughs> Uh, so like Twitter is like kind of the worst of that because it's like engaging like I'm happy to engage with people I'm 
I mean, I prefer to just be left alone a lot of the times, but like, <laughs> but like engaging with people on the internet is a very labor intensive yes. process for me, as is like texting people and things like that. So I tend for not sure. to do it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that we, oh, so yeah, but like I said, rate, review, subscribe, follow us Ooh. on uh, Apple and Podcast, and we'll be back next week with uh, yeah. another film. So bye. 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 bye.